And in three, two, one. Hello and welcome to the Investment Property Income Podcast. My name is Jeff Eady, and joining me today, as always, is the effervescent, the shining light in my otherwise dark world, my superhero, one of Canada's top mortgage brokers, Mr. Jonathan Tilger. Jonathan, how are you today? I'm laughing after that intro. <laughs> man. How you doing? That was awesome. I've never seen you laugh that hard. <laughs> I was like, okay, where is this going? All right. This Sign is on, you one. crazy I like diamond. It. I like it. I like it. I like it. Not all heroes wear capes, sir. <laughs> sometimes I wear pants. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I don't know. You've only got the Zoom camera up on your top half. That's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, boy. Do we have a lot to talk about? And we may be flying a little bit by the seat of our pants here because we don't have a we don't have a narrow discussion. We'll say it that way. So the two major parties in Canada uh, have both uh, proposed different housing platforms and things are going to do to make it better. One of the things that I wanted to talk about, because you and I have worked in this field a fair amount, uh, is the commitment to new homes and how that's actually going to be implemented in the timeframes that they've uh, proposed, but then also talk about some of the tax uh, platforms they have around both of those those strategies. Does that make sense? It makes sense. Yes. And then we can certainly talk about um, how housing is built and how the the capital structure typically works, and kind of put it all together so that folks understand the actual economics of the ideas that are proposed. Is that why are you looking at me like that, Jonathan? This, this is going to be an interesting topic. I'm looking forward to already. <laughs> Jonathan, why don't we talk about uh, typical, typical capital structure first when it comes to developers of, let's say, residential homes, large subdivisions. Are, 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 are something else something else you got to do there you're <laughs> just my, my phone just went off i'm just putting that on, on quiet so it won't happen again so. <laughs> well nobody ever texts me but you jeff <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly how i'm feeling where's this coming from what's going on <laughs> hilarious um so let's talk about how a capital structure typically works for uh, a home developer how does the initial capital typically get raised? Well, either they've got to have the money or they need investors. One or the other. They, there's a certain amount of, uh, of what's going into it of just equity that, that a builder will require in the project. So it's either it's their money as the builder or they've got uh, an investor pool who, who basically funds that initial draw. And is there any specific qualifications for those investors? For the investors, it could be friends and family. It could be, uh, uh, there could be a whole range of things. Um, but as, as far as, as far as qualifications, I mean, if, if it's going through some sort of structure, they'll have to be accredited typically. Uh, but overall, Hey, if it's friends and family, they're not gonna, then it's really, it could be anybody. So it could be Joe Schmo with five grand and somebody else with 5 million. 
invested in the yeah, same thing. Yeah, ge generally speaking, but but I think for a builder, they're not going to deal with a thing of, hey, we got five grand. We, 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 we need five no, of million of equity. We're not going to deal with, with, with Joe Schmo with five grand. Of, of course not, but that is possible because we see that a lot with developers here in Canada. There's not really any... Like if you're going to invest in, say, the exempt market or um, stock markets, there are uh, income requirements for the types of investments you can do. Yeah. Like a regular person could put in 30 grand a year into an exempt market, right? That's that's their cap because they want to make sure that they, they know what they're doing and they understand the risks. Whereas we don't have that with real estate here in Canada. Um, you and I have seen several people who raise kind of willy nilly capital into projects and, you know, they've got 40 different ma and pa investors in some sort of hopeful, uh, project, but they don't always come to fruition. And we've seen, certainly seen that in the pooled mortgage area over the last few years here in Canada. Yep. That's, uh, that, that's a whole different discussion. <laughs> um, question for you though. Are pooled mortgages still allowed? Uh, my understanding is yes, but there's a, there's a lot of restrictions on them. And I know, I don't know many places that are still doing them. <laughs> yeah. 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 We, we had some people doing maybe perhaps not, not the most up and up things. And yeah, the government really cracked down on them. That was like the hottest investment area for a while. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't really comment on that because just, I, it's one of those things that everything I've heard is just, Hey, don't do it most brokerages i mean the brokerage that i'm at they basically came out with a policy saying you do not we zero tolerance for this we do not accept really? it at all so yeah really wow yeah. yep i'm uh, i'm lucky enough to have not had any any investors in that area but i certainly spent my time learning in there it was yeah some interesting stuff anyhow so typically there is a, a percentage of equity that has to be um funded one way or another by the developer what percentage is that typically so when you get into it, um, when you get into it, if you look at a, I'll say it through your institutional funds, so your, your banks, they're going to finance the, pro, the project. They'll basically, I think they're mandated, they can only go to 65% loan to value. Okay. Uh, they will allow secondary financing. So they will, uh, but they will usually require that the, I'll call it the equity pool be probably in about the 15% range. Okay. So they, they need to have the, the builder or their investor group. And by their investor group, I just mean that the corporation that they're going into purchases with need to have, needs to have a minimum of 15%. Okay. So the original group, whether it's a million or one, yep. has to have 15%. And then where does the other financing, how does that work? So there, 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 can, there can be secondary financing through private funds, through different sources. That's where we're talking about that pooled funds. That's where they were playing a lot of, <clears throat> but they, they will, to my understanding that that part is allowed where you can have some secondary finance and get you to the 85 or so. But then that would have to come in behind the bank financing. I'm sure. That's correct. Yes. So you, you, that's, that's an interesting thing because you'd start out with your 15%. Let's say it's a uh, $100 million because it's an easy number to break down. Yep. So you have $15 million yourself. Yep. You now need to raise another, what, $20 million? Yep. Through whatever means necessary. But once you've got that, then you can bring the bank in. But the bank's actually the third person on there 
but they want to become the first. Is that correct? Exactly. Yep, that's correct. Yep. <laughs> wow, that's just greedy. I'm taking my ball and going home. <laughs> so I would imagine all parties involved obviously know this from the beginning and the banks always come first unless, of course, it's the government. Yep. So that could fill up your other 65 million in that capital stack. And that's typically how a place gets built. Now, of course, there are different types of loans that come in there because that 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 structure can be further broken down into land and construction financing. Is that correct? Uh, it can be further broken down, but they'll usually look at 65% of the uh, kind of the as complete value. Okay. Uh, between Oh, as the, complete, not as well, current. Okay. Well, I, I, either as complete or cost basis um it it so there's there's variables in this one here so so I, I i don't want to talk i don't want to talk too specific because there's too many variables involved <laughs> okay that's fair that's fair but um there is the, the the two different types of financing you would typically need would be land and construction yep yeah okay so that that makes I hope that makes something that's I found very complicated in the beginning a little simpler to digest. I like diagrams and stuff. So that's but you're basically looking at a, a bunch of different variables within two types of financing and at least three different types of capital. So that means it's challenging for developers to get projects off the ground. Is that a fair statement? Uh, well, developer needs to have some experience, especially when we're talking the scale we're talking about, like the hundred million. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, where a lot of developers start out with, "Hey, let's let's build two, three homes," mm -hmm. and there, I mean, it's a similar process, but it's it's just on a smaller scale. So be before before as a builder that 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 any institution is going to look and say, "Yeah, we're going to back this builder." They want to see a track record. Mm -hmm. And the track record usually starts smaller and, and as they get more experience, they show they can do it. They show they can complete the project, pay back all their investors, obviously build up a little bit more of a capital pool themselves. Mm -hmm. So they've got more, call it skin in the game. Now, uh, now that's where they can move up the ladder. So do you think any of this federal funding would go to those smaller guys? Uh, so what are the things well, they're looking to build? I mean, what, what's the policies between one? Well, if we just look, I mean, it's 1 million over three years or 1.4 million new places over four years. So we're talking similar numbers, mm -hmm. roughly, uh, roughly about four, about three, three to 400,000 houses a year. If we just look at the end numbers. So this would most likely be some sort of contract with major developers as opposed to sending it on down the line to the little guy who's trying to get ahead. It's well, it's obviously much easier to get a major developer who can sit there and say, yeah, we, we can, we can build uh, we can build 10,000 units for you. It's way faster than saying, well, I can build five. No, just no different than what we we're just saying of if you got to raise $5 million, do you want to do it $5,000 at a time? Or do you want to get a handful of people of 500,000? No, absolutely. Now, do you feel that perhaps uh, a portion of that should be set aside for fledgling developers that are not fledgling, perhaps, but along the way trying to build quality homes at a, a smaller scale? I, I personally, I think I think you definitely want that because, as with everything, you don't want it to be that hey, the big guy always wins and the little guy gets nothing. You want uh, you want the little guys to get the experience so they can they can grow, they can get bigger. Yeah, well, you need another generation coming in behind, right? Yeah, exactly. Plus, none of us is as smart as all of us with 
new builders entering the market at different stages, we find new innovations. We find easier and, and cheaper and better ways to do things. Exactly. Not to, not to mention, obviously, there's different design styles because if you look at the end consumer, not everybody wants to buy the exact same property. Yeah. Actually, a friend of mine uh, was the first guy to put, what do you say, 16-foot townhomes in Hamilton uh, with the Corktown uh, townhomes that he built. And everybody told him, oh, you'll never sell 16 foot wide homes in, in Hamilton. It'll never fly. It'll, and he sold them out before they were ever even put the shovel in the ground. And it just goes to show no matter what the housing styles, um, people are going to buy them. And at the end of the day, it comes down to, hey, if uh, if if there's housing available and there's a housing shortage, then uh, then then people will live in different places. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And not to mention, um, it really changes the dynamic of our communities as you're going through them to see the different architecture. I think it's brilliant. I don't think we should be tearing down the way that we did perhaps in the 80s. Uh, you know, I lived in Cabbage Town for 20 years and I love that's actually the largest existing uh, Victorian neighborhood in the world. Really? I didn't know that. Interest, interesting factoid. Yes, yes, I was very... yes. yes. Straight. Just pull, pull up the facts as we're going through. Love it. <laughs> My friends used to call me Cliff Clavin because I have all sorts of different, <laughs> you know, Nami. <laughs> Terrible impression. Anyhow, um, let's talk about so how these things get funded. We've we've talked about this before. No matter how big the fund, no matter how big the pension, no matter how big the insurance company, it all comes down to Ma and Pa Kettle putting their money in somewhere and trusting a company to. Um, manage it properly, but it's only by pooling all of those funds that these, you know, multi-billion dollar statements can be made. And if you follow the money all the way down, it, you know, yes, there are a few people controlling the directions of it, but it's up to every Canadian, the taxes and strategies around how they invest as to where they're going to put their money. So a couple of things we saw on here that I think could either encourage or discourage are around the taxes that uh, both parties have, have mentioned, you know, my least favorite. So let's talk about it first. Stop excessive profits in the financialization of housing, possible new REIT tax. I freaking hate it. <laughs> well, that, that, I just looked at that policy. If you just look at it, if you're stopping the excessive profits, then what incentive is there? Well, first of all, what did the word excessive mean? But what incentive is there then for the uh, the builders? I don't know any REITs that are making 25% returns. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't know what excessive actually means, but I think this is something where they're just trying to say we're going after the, the rich. But when it comes down to it, most people who invest in REITs are smaller investors. Yeah. I would say, you know, it's the 80-20 rule. I'm sure there's some rich people that are in those, those REITs, of course. But I would think 80% of that would be between thirty dollars and $100,000 investors. Yeah, probably. I think that would be a fair statement. I'm not saying 100% because I haven't researched that. But my understanding of the area, that would probably be a fairly uh, accurate depiction. So really, they're talking about taxing Canadians on their investments. Jonathan, being Bring the economist, down. yes, <laughs> being the economist, let's let's break that down to well, let's follow that chain down. Let's follow that money. So if they start taxing the REITs, what's the first 
repercussion. Well, that will make the REITs less, less profitable. And so people will, the, the money will flow elsewhere. So people will stop putting money into REITs, which yep. will mean REITs quit buying massive properties and managing them and all of those things, which means there'll be less money in the market for people to build more housing. Is that correct? Uh, if you look at it that way, then that's, that's probably what the trickle effect will happen. Well, I, I think it's important to look at that stuff. You know, you and I have certainly been on some phone calls lately that have been interesting that we learn that the, the trickle down effect of, of different businesses on different investments and how it affects the actual investment into that business. And this is one that I think is super important to understand because we always hear about new taxes and old taxes and blah, blah, blah. But we got to understand the true repercussions of it instead of just going with a, a, a heartfelt response. We have to really analytically analyze these and, and pull them apart. Yeah. So instead of just painting the whole thing with a broad brush, you really have to be more specific and get down to uh, get down to the, uh, the triangular effect of how these things play out. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, sorry, I just lost my train of thought. Um, I don't know. This is this, this, this one. I just don't think it's well thought out. I think that's going to have repercussions on people that just, they don't expect, but if you start taxing the major investors into the market, you're going to have problems, period. Well, just m money will will go to other investments. Yeah. That, that's essentially how it will go. Then, then effectively, I mean, if you just look at going back to the triangular thing going, yeah, you tax here, the money flows elsewhere. So suddenly there's less money there. And that's just, just it becomes a, a cyclic. It, it just goes around and that's exactly how it plays out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, what do they call the devil's triangle? Something like that. Yeah. No, exactly. it's the, uh, no, it's the, what's, what's the, uh, it's fire oxygen and uh, fuel source, ignition yeah. triangle, something like that. Ignition source. Anyhow, um, totally you, off topic. Yeah, if you, pull, if you pull one of them back, the others will be affected. Or you increase yeah. one of them, the others will be affected. Yeah. Oh, 100%. 100%. Um, the interesting thing around this, too, is um, you really, they're trying to push for the first time home buyers to get all this stuff where do you think they're going to be building these homes or should they build the homes more importantly in order to make them more um affordable for first-time home buyers well i think you've got to look you've got to look at where your first-time home buyers are uh and and th th this is, this is an answer i don't know and ultimately where do they want to be living mm-hmm to just say, hey, we're going to... Well, where gonna, the jobs are. That's yeah, always exactly. number one rule. To, to just sit there and say, well, we can build lots of lots of uh, affordable housing in Windsor, for instance. Is that necessarily the best strategy? How many? How much demand is there? Yes, you can probably get cheaper places there. Windsor's uh, actually coming along pretty darn yeah, good. I, I, I know it's coming <laughs> along. Just a, a place that popped in my head. Or, so, so I think you really have to look and say, where is, where is there the greatest demand for, for properties? And, and also what types of properties. So, so this is interesting. This actually gets me thinking more about their like business policies moving forward and the incentives that they should have for companies to grow outside of perhaps the GTA. Uh, if you look at uh, places like Woodstock, uh, what else is out there? Like Drumbo, Exeter, 
they've got the Toyota plants, Kitchener, uh, Kitchener, Waterloo. All of those places have grown exponentially over the last few years because they're having the major manufacturers out there, which means jobs are out there, which means people want to buy houses out there. They are more affordable than they are in other places. Of course, that won't always be because of, you know supply and demand and all that stuff. But I would like to see some some interrelated policies, perhaps saying, "Hey, we were going to want to put a whole bunch of uh, buildings." or we want to build up a whole bunch of houses out here, but here's why. And yeah. we're bringing this major manufacturer to here. So there's going to be a demand for, for houses there. I don't think this is the thing about drawing lines between stuff that a lot of people just don't necessarily see, but it's so, so, so crucial. Um, we saw that with uh, GM and Oshawa. I don't know if GM has come back, but I heard they were something about retooling and opening back up. Uh, I haven't followed that one, but that would drive your house prices way up if that com- if that that opens back up, right? Well, suddenly, if if there's more jobs, there's just becomes more people wanting to live there because there's an, a job for them to go to there. Yeah, well, wherever there's a job, somebody's going to need a place, place to live, right? Yeah, and and all and ultimately, where there's a job, you get all the uh, you get all the the trickle down effect. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. More they, business, they, they, more they small want, businesses, they want the shops, the restaurants, all that stuff there because hey, yeah. they live there. One hundred percent. So jobs are good for the economy. Good lesson. (laughs) Sorry, JT. (laughs) That was just summing up what we've been talking about for the last five minutes. So yeah. Well done. Oh boy. Now here's something else that I find interesting and it's totally off topic, but the hyperloop proposals. Have you seen any of this? What do you mean by the Hyperloop proposal? Hyperloop. Elon, Elon, Elon Musk proposed a Hyperloop between Toronto and, uh, boy, I've been out of Toronto too long. I said Toronto, uh, Toronto and uh, Montreal. And it would be a half an hour trip. So this is, this is a, uh, like a high speed train. Is that correct? Yeah. You don't know this Hyperloop? Uh, I've, I've heard of it now. I didn't hear. I don't remember the Hyperloop name, but as you're saying that now, I know what you're talking about. Jeez, Jonathan, you really don't watch the news. <laughs> Actually, this hasn't been, oh, I haven't seen anything about it in a while. But uh, yeah, it's the um, vacuum tube that would he would uh, he's proposed one to run between Montreal and Toronto. And it would be a half an hour commute for people to get from, from Montreal to Toronto. So along the lines of the high speed trains that Japan has. Yes. Uh, but even a little bit faster. They're maglev, they're small, uh, smaller cars, and they're in a vacuum tube. That's why they call it the Hyperloop, because the vacuum tube actually takes the air resistance out of the equation. So it decreases friction, increases train speed. Maybe I know a little more about that than I should. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I read his biography. He's an interesting dude. Uh, So um, the one thing I I, I do like the conservatives said here that uh, the liberals did not mention. Well, perhaps it is a six, 600 million for office space conversion, but they don't say it's their office space. That, that, yeah, that was the, the liberal policy. Yeah. Whereas the conservatives are saying uh, releasing 15 percent of federally owned properties for housing that I think would make a huge dent immediately. Well, the, sorry, go ahead. 
I was just going to say, just with the the proposal for, I mean, a million homes, you need the properties to build those on. And if you're using federal lands, you could reduce costs right there. Yeah, huge. Especially if you've got the the contractors on contract. The, you know, here's our partnership. We own the land. You build, and we'll give you the financing. Like, holy crap, that's that's a pretty fast transition compared to you know, looking at having to find and acquire the land and zoning and all of those things. That's, that's smart. Yep. Um, what was the other one? Incent builders and investors with tax programs. Obviously we need to know more about this, but good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Good idea. Which is kind of the opposite of the, uh, of the tax, the builders and, and the REITs and the yeah. investors. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a hundred percent flip. Now, the interesting thing is that this was all uh, on the conservative platform that we see. It's basically it's a um, drop down of the one million new homes in three years. So it's a part of that strategy. Whereas in the the, uh, the liberal platform, taxing the REITs is completely in like the miscellaneous. Yes. <laughs> so I think this was just like, a, hey, you know, you know who sucks? REITs. Let, let's tax them. <laughs> Whereas this other one's like, hey, you know what we really need? People with money. <laughs> that gets things done. Very interesting. Um, so based on that, who do you think has the better plan? That, and I mean, that's, that's all over, all, everything aside, that's, we're talking about one specific strategy and the things that are linked to it to actually make it work and affect the lives of Canadians and homeowners in a positive way. Which one do you think currently, from what we can see, looks like a more well thought out plan? Well, if we're just, if we're talking about the building of homes, which is what we're talking about here, and the, the two points we just brought up, which is one is saying, hey, let's give them incentives, whereas the other one is saying, let's, uh, let's tax them. Um, I, I think that speaks pretty clearly where, where we're both leading. <laughs> and hey, look, this isn't talking about my politics. I'm talking about which party is saying, hey, I've got a better plan. This one's pretty obvious to me as far as the, the one million new homes, which, which seems to be the main thing that they're both talking about because, you know, both parties love to, to parrot each other. But uh, I think if you're talking about the, the, um, the better plan long term, it's pretty, pretty simple here. The conservatives have thought it out better. They understand the economics better. Because yeah, agree, agree with you there, based on the, based on the things we've gone through. <laughs> yeah, yeah, taxing the REITs. That one, that one kind of blew me away. That was. I also, uh, you know, because it's all interrelated, the stress test exemption for renewing borrowers. I like that one. I, I think that's a, a, a hiccup in the process that doesn't really need to be there, unless, of course, they've screwed up so completely in the last five years of their mortgage that they can't afford it. But that stress test, they've obviously gotten to the point where they're renewing. So they shouldn't have to go through that. Yeah. And, and what that gives is that gives uh, that gives clients more options on the renewal. So they're not tied to just renew back with the current lender. They, they can look around. Mm. So that, that's what that's what that one really comes down to. It's okay. more options for the consumer so they can really look for what's their best option for to uh, to move on with their mortgage. So really off topic and I shouldn't have said it. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I guess, you know what, the, the other one comes, to, uh, it's the uh, increase the $1 million insurable eligible cap. They both have a plan for that. 
So I, I think that's a, a really good idea. You and I talked about that in our last uh, episode, but what's that really going to mean when it comes to building all these new homes? Obviously, if they're over a million dollars, they're not going to be affordable new homes. They'd be more in the ritzy areas. Well, just if you look, uh, that's pretty much anything in Toronto. If you look, yeah. look to your major centers, I mean, the, the, the big thing with where the where it currently stands for insured is, is the majority of centers, people cannot buy with less than 20% down because the properties are a million dollars or more. Mm-hmm. So it, it just, it just opens up for, uh, for those who, especially the younger people who don't necessarily have the same amount of savings to put in as their down payment. Okay. Okay. Even though they may have the income, they just haven't had. Okay. Yeah. It, so it, we get it gives more them an the opportunity yeah, it, well, it gives them an opportunity to get into a property that is maybe a little bit nicer, a little bit bigger, as opposed to, you know, I've got to get this starter place right now. I can barely live in it uh, because I don't have 20%. Hmm. So all in all, there's some good stuff here, some bad stuff. I think we, we it's pretty clear who's got the better plan so far. I'm excited to see what happens and where we come. But uh, Jonathan, I appreciate your time. Anything you want to wrap it up with? Just uh, when it comes when it comes to all this, when it comes to uh, to politics, to voting, I mean, number one, vote. Number two, it's it's do your own research, figure out what's important to you. Do your research and, and so you can make an informed decision come voting day. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's so important to get out there and vote. It's what makes this country so great, no matter which side of the fence you're on or if you want to. I actually a few years ago, I actually went in and wanted to uh, I don't know what it's called, but surrender my vote. And I just didn't know the process. So I think I just put nobody on it. But I actually, there's a process where you can go in and say, hey, you know what? I don't like anybody involved here. This is what I would like to do with my vote. And it is federally counted as somebody who's angry at the system. Yeah. So even if that's what you do, it's better than not going in. I always get so choked up when I go in. Just, you know, the biggest guy in there standing there trying not to cry because I'm so damn proud to be a Canadian. Uh, <laughs> anyhow, Jonathan, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you. Thank you for listening. We certainly appreciate that you've come to hang out with us and listen to us blabber on for, for a while. I hope we've filled your time with a lot of value. And uh, we'd certainly love any comments, concerns, questions, anything you'd like to talk to us about on this. You can certainly shoot Jonathan an email at jonathan at a mortgageplan.com or download the free book that we put out, uh, the Investment Property Income Book at investmentpropertyincomebook.com. And uh, join our meetup group, the Investment Property Income Meetup Group on meetup.com. And of course, if you're listening to us right now, you've probably already found our podcast, but you can find us on all the major uh, podcasting platforms, including Google, Amazon, and Spotify. Jonathan Tilger, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for listening. Have a fantastic day, and we'll talk to you soon.